Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of God is Not a Theory with Ken Fish. I'm your host, Grant Pemberton. And on today's episode, we are talking, Ken and I, about deconstruction. Uh, what does it mean? Uh, where do we go from here? And uh, how do we see the idea of deconstructing uh, within the context of the wider church, within the context of what's going on? So very excited to talk about this. It's something I spend a lot of time talking about. Uh, with folks and uh, looking forward to our conversation. So Ken, thank you so much for uh, for taking time to talk to us about uh, about this important topic. Yeah, glad to be here, Grant. This is a this is a deep well and not an easy one. So um, hopefully our listeners will give us grace as we have this conversation. Yeah, amen, amen. We uh, it is a sticky topic, and it is one that I think has to be approached with 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 that sort of tenor of uh of humility and, and trepidation because a lot of it has been caused by by the church uh to some degree so um, you know it's funny that you even say that grant before we even start one of the first people in the relatively modern period to go through what we would what i'm going to unpack further but i'll just at the moment slap the label on it deconstruction was the uh, Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard. And uh, he wrote several signal works that I read when I was in college studying uh, the history and philosophy of religion at Princeton. And uh, one of the important ones is called Fear and Trembling. And you just said, you know, with fear and trembling or with trepidation. And, you know, Kierkegaard in particular, was really up in arms about what he saw going on within wider, we could call it mainstream, uh, the French might have called it bourgeoisie culture uh, in his native country of Denmark, because at least in Denmark, supposedly everybody was a Christian, you know, Europe had been supposedly Christianized. And, uh, he saw lots of holes in the Christianity that he was exposed to. And yet Kierkegaard held on for a radical, radical faith encounter. Um, he even called it an existential crisis that you would go through as you encountered the living God. And so um, he, he writes on Abraham and the sacrifice of Isaac and how you know all of the old forms and norms were blown apart for Abraham, and he's called to sacrifice Isaac, and and this really for him was the equivalent of letting go of this you know what was sacred to you, and re-understanding Christianity in a brand new way. Now I'm I'm giving a very high level summary of a very deep work, and I don't mean to do it injustice. So for any of our readers who are familiar with Kierkegaard's works. Uh, forgive me if you think I've given it short shrift, but I'm just trying to give a summary here. But but I think it's interesting that, you know, back in Kierkegaard's day, he was already um, addressing this very modern concept that today we call deconstruction. They didn't call it that then. But Kierkegaard was deconstructing in the sense that he was examining beliefs that had been handed to him but which he didn't really know where they fit into his understanding of the world. They, and so he 
he ultimately rejected Christendom. He wrote a book called Attack on Christendom. And he did it as a believer um, because he said the structures and the forms and the norms don't work, but the faith and the truths of the faith do. And with this, he, he came up with a very uh, personal, uh, existential form of faith. And, and, and really, I think as a framing concept, that's, that's the overarching idea of what's going on in modern Christian deconstruction. So we could say Kierkegaard was a few centuries ahead of his time uh, because, because these matters actually, they, they are perennial. They, they recur again and again and again. I could even suggest maybe passages in scripture where people appear to be deconstructing in this sense. So anyway, all of that's preamble, but let's get going with our conversation. No, it's good. It's good. Well, why don't you uh, give us a definition of what are we talking about exactly when we're, when we're talking about deconstructing? Well, here's the thing. When we talk about deconstruction, there isn't really one single definition. There are different things that people say. And um, they, it's, it's like you know, the, the classical story of the blind men trying to describe the elephant. And one says, well, it feels like a rope because he's grabbing the tail. And one says, it feels like a tree trunk because he's on the, maybe he's on the leg. And, you know, another one says, well, it feels soft and flexible like a garden hose. Well, he's on the, the trunk of the elephant. So we've got all these different kind of pieces, but probably the uh, most governing thought leader in this area was a French philosopher in he, he died just at the very dawn of the 21st century in 2004 but he was born in 1930 and so you know he lived out most of his 74 years in the 20th century and his name was Jacques Derrida if I'm saying his name correctly Derrida uh, and he had four kind of primary framing thoughts to what he was after in deconstruction. But before I even tell you what those were, it's important to recognize that the era in which Derrida lived was, you know, the, the kind of the depression years and the World War II years. He grew up through that period of time. And then he lived in post-war Europe. And post-war Europe, was um, an, a place of widespread loss of faith. People turned from the church in droves. They abandoned it in droves. Prior to the First World War, which they termed the Great War, uh, prior to that war, Europe was largely a place of faith, at least as they understood it. Remember, Kierkegaard lived during uh, the period preceding the First World War, not immediately preceding it, but preceding it when most of Europe was largely a place of faith. But we start to see a breakdown in that synthesis in 1789 in France, when we get the French Revolution, which is a highly secularizing movement. And it is, it is revolting against the structures of power and influence, uh, both within French government and within the French Catholic Church. And so the French government is eliminated and Marie Antoinette is executed and the French church goes through a purge and 300,000 clerics are put to the guillotine. And all of this under the name of a committee known as the Committee on Public Safety, 
which was led by you know one of the key leaders of the French Revolution. It's it's a chillingly modern name, that Committee on Public Safety, chillingly modern, and it is a it is a uh, it's a paradigm of what it looks like to see faith being lost. And it was during that same period, uh, during the French Revolution, that they brought a prostitute into Notre Dame Cathedral, which was you know, the center of French Christianity. They lat literally sat her down on the high altar in Notre Dame, and they said, this is the God of France. And they tore down the religious symbols and icons within Notre Dame. Now, many of those have been uh, returned to their rightful place in the cathedral, but the spiritual impact of that on the whole of French society uh, continues to reverberate more than two centuries later. And it was because, you know, the scripture says, can a nation be converted in a day? Well, can a nation deconstruct in a day or in a few years? And what we see happening with the French Revolution later on is mirrored in the Russian Revolution, where the Bolsheviks come to power and they repudiate faith and they kill the Tsar and the Tsarist, Nicholas and Alexander, and they purge the Russian Orthodox Church. So again, we see similar behaviors being driven by similar trends. And so it's, it's a very important topic for us to be discussing, but it's not an easy one because these are not easy things to discuss to begin with. Many of the events that I've just named are not well known to modern folks because we tend to disregard history in our time. And so, you know, we have all of these things where we literally have to reframe reality and, you know, visit these concepts afresh and anew in order to understand what's really going on to us. And I think that's part of the, the, the malaise, the confusion of our time is that many people literally don't know what's going on. They, they just feel like they're losing their mind. Right. So, so let's go on with uh, the writings of uh, Jacques Derrida. So again, he lived he, most of his life in the 20th century. He did cross over into the 21st century for four years, but, but he's, he, he really almost embodies um, the anime of the especially post-war 20th century, because remember the war ended in 1945. So he would have been 15 years old. So he lived through the reconstruction of Europe. He watched the loss of faith again. Now he wasn't alive for the first loss that occurred in the French revolution, but he's watching a second loss of faith occur all around him. And he's watching not just France, but the rest of Europe falling into chaos. So um, going back to Jacques Derrida, uh, he had kind of four primary vectors that framed his own thinking. The first was that humans developed the capacity to impose psychological constructs of meaning upon their world as a survival mechanism. Now, what that means in modern you know, street language, to, to unpack that just a bit, is Derrida is saying they created a mental map, or we could say a worldview. Um, or in other words, meaning is a, a human psychological creation. It's not a discovery of anything, nor is it a divine revelation of absolute truth. 
<clears throat> and so this is a really important point as we understand deconstructionism and I would say more broadly, the postmodern point of view. Whereas the traditional understanding from a Christian standpoint of the world is that there is a correct point of view. It's based in God's mind and it's reflected to us through divine revelation, principally through scripture. But if you're a charismatic, additionally, through the charismatic gifts of the spirit, principally prophecy, whereby the mind and sentiments of God can be articulated in a way that we understand. This point of view, this postmodern point of view, uh, and this understanding of uh, deconstruction would say that actually reality in life has no meaning. It's all random. And whatever there appears to be of meaning is something that human beings have imposed upon it through the mental map or the worldview or the psychological construct. And so fundamentally, when we look at what's underlying the postmodern view of the world and the deconstructionism that arises from it, there is fundamentally what used to be called a nihilistic worldview, that there is no real meaning to life at all, which is a pretty dreadful way to live. But, but there are many, many, many people who hold on to this and especially in our time where approximately 30% of the population considers themselves to be either nuns or duns. And we've talked about this in previous episodes. These people that are nuns, they don't believe in any religion because they don't believe there's anything to believe. They, they think that the world is entirely random. And really what arises from that is exactly what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians, when he says, if it is only for this life that we hope for the resurrection, then let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And so with that, we've seen a rise of, I would say, hedonism, but more than that, sensualism, where most of our life's pursuits is on pleasing our senses, whether it's our eyes with what we think is beautiful. And of course, there are many perspectives on what beautiful is. Uh, it could be pleasing our senses with sumptuous food. And, you know, we see the rise of people who say, I'm a foodie. Uh, not that there hasn't always been Epicureanism and gluttony and so forth through the centuries. But, but you know, we have a new version of it today that I can tell you when I was a boy, I didn't know many people in America who would proudly proclaim, yeah, I'm a foodie. So that part has changed. Uh, people may be pursuing, you know, sensual pleasures in terms of sex and in its many forms. And with this, there isn't any particular category to sex. It's just whatever I feel drawn to and, and gets me off. And so, you know, we see the rise of the LGBTQIA plus movement, which essentially is embracing a whole range of sexual behaviors that historically would have said, no, this is bounded by revelation. And God has made it clear that these are not acceptable ways for us to express our sexuality. So by and large, we don't. I mean, of course, there were always some who did, but the majority of culture, at least in the West, didn't do that. So this first point is a really powerful point with all kinds of outworkings that come out of it. The second point is that uh, deconstruction asserts that human language at best communicates not absolute truth, but rather how a certain individual conceives or conceived 
of truth at a certain moment in time in his or her own cultural, political, religious, environmental, and experiential context. So language tries to communicate what people uh, have understood to be true, but the fact that someone thought it was true doesn't necessarily make it true. And because everyone has his or her own cultural context, political context, religious context, environmental context, experiential context, economic context, um, I mean, conceivably, there are around 8 billion different views on the planet right now. And then there were billions of others in you know, centuries gone with all the people that have lived and died through the years. And so there is no one particular point of view that we should come to. All we can seek to do is to understand the other person's point of view. And one of the re reasons that this is so important to understand is it shows the absolute disdain that modern culture, modernity, has for the Christian faith because the Christian faith believes and, or, and has stated, although in some quarters that's breaking down, that we not only know truth, others can know it as well. And not only can we know it, but you should align with it and abandon whatever your own perspective is in order to come alongside of and to align with this truth that we proclaim. Now, if you, if you understand some of my preamble about structures of power, which we'll come back to and, and discuss more as we go on. Um, you can see why making a claim like that, even if said in the gentlest of ways, automatically is repugnant to the modern mind. And it drives further the process of deconstruction in people who believe this intrinsically to be immoral, to claim that we have the truth in any sense of the word. Now, I've got two more points, but I've already laid a lot out there. So I'll, let me just pause and ask, do you have anything you want to ask or react to before I keep going? No, I, I, I think both of those are, are spot on. And, you know, I, just in like pastorally and in, in being with people through this, um, certainly certainly there are um there are things within people that don't want to be uh controlled that don't want to be um you know dictated by what they perceive to be arbitrary rules and um you know i so i think the first two points are just spot on is i've i've spent a lot of time sitting with people um in in this in this area so yeah Please continue. Well, let, before I do that, let me just make this one comment. So you were talking about people who react to arbitrary rules and fair enough, nobody likes being subjected to arbitrary rules. But in fact, part of the Christian point of view, the Christian worldview is that these things are actually not arbitrary. They come from God. Now, if you reject God, well, then you're back to, it seems arbitrary. But if you start with, with, the, with the understanding that there is a God, and he created the universe. This is why Genesis is where it is. This is the book of beginnings. In the beginning, God. That's, those are the first couple of words in the book of Genesis. 
and then what did God do? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, if he's the creator, then he gets to write the operator's manual or the, you know, the owner's manual. Uh, and so this is what you're reading is the owner's manual. This is how right. to live the life that, the, that God, the creator of the universe, intended you to live. So uh, anyway, if you understand that point of view, that, that God is this one, well, that creates, um, it, it means that we have to listen to what God says. And in the book of Jeremiah, there's the dialogue between Jeremiah and God, and God sends Jeremiah down to the potter's house. And the potter is throwing clay on the wheel and, you know, making a pot. Then he doesn't like the pot, so he, you know, squishes it down and reshapes the clay into a new shape. And the Lord says, do I not have the right to make of one man this and another man that? Do I not have the right to say what I will say and do what I will do? I mean, really much of what is going on in the postmodern mind is a rejection of God as creator. And with that, it is no wonder that we have the confusion that we have in our time because people are actually trying to create a map of reality apart from God. And yet the scripture says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Said another way, if you don't begin with the fear of the Lord, you will never have wisdom at all because you won't be starting at the right beginning point. Right. And I think, I think you're, I know the, the next couple of points you're going to get into, because we, we talked about it afterwards. And so I think that's going to really speak into a lot of it. So, and to sort of jump to our, our uh, a little bit more of our conversation about it. So, yep. All right. So the third point then is, uh, and it's, it actually follows on the first two. Uh, and just to resummer or to summarize, just to restate, humans develop the capacity to impose psychological constructs of meaning on their world as a survival mechanism. They needed to make sense of their world. They created a mental map. They created worldviews. And then secondly, deconstruction asserts that human language at best communicates rather than absolute truth, rather how particular individuals conceived or now conceive of truth in a certain moment of time. And so we can understand how they came to what they believe, but we don't necessarily need to embrace what they thought. And therefore, point three, and this is, this is the new one, those first two were summaries, uh, Ancient works are not useful in discovering absolute truth or meaning. We can reject them out of hand. And additionally, the further removed that these sources are from us in time, the less the reader is likely to understand what the author actually had in mind when using their terms, terms like justice or truth or good or evil, things like that. And so this, by the way, is not only true of the Bible, although it certainly is applied to the Bible by those who hold to this point of view. And by the way, just to be clear, I don't. I'm just trying to elaborate what this is to help people understand what's going on. Um, this would also be true of the Hindu Vedas or the Pranas. It would be true of the Upanishads. It would be true of the sayings of the Buddha or the 1200 volumes of the Tao. I mean, all religious texts are suspect because they aren't our religious texts. And so with this, we see in our time, really, the, uh, 
I don't know what you want to call it, custom designed religion. And, you, you know, we hear even this language, well, the God that I serve would never do that. Well, what if the God you serve would do that? Well, but the God that I serve would never do that. Well, why not? Well, because I know my God and he would never do that. Well, where did you get this God? Well, if you really press into that and dialogue about it, sooner or later, someone's going to tell you, well, and basically I made up, I made it up. I came up with it from somewhere. Now they will say that the writers of the scriptures, whichever scriptures did the same thing. But one of the things about Christianity and before it Judaism that we claim and we uniquely claim it is that our scriptures are God breathed. They are literally breathed out by God. First Timothy three sixteen. Um, and they are theopanustos, the, the very breath of God blew upon those who were inspired to write the scriptures down. This is the doctrine of inspiration. And so the scriptures actually give us God's perspective, which is the one and only one perspective that is true and right. And all of our attempts to find truth in ourselves will ultimately founder. Now, there is a question, if we encounter God's truth, how do we respond to that? What is our subjective experience of God's truth? This is, in a way, what we call religious experience, and there are many different ways to experience God's truth. But God's word doesn't change. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but not one jot or tittle from the law will pass away until everything is fulfilled. And so there is a durability and a timelessness to the scripture that we don't find in, well, any other text that's ever been written. But many of the other religious texts of the world, they do reflect the attempt of mankind to reach out or reach up or down or in or whatever preposition you want to use to connect with the divine. Whereas our view as Judeo-Christians has always been that God chose to reveal himself, to reach down and to reveal himself to us because we could not have discovered him on our own. And this is really a fundamental difference between Christianity and with it Judaism, where it's faithfully practiced, uh, and everything else that's going on in the religious landscape. Because when we seek God, we are creating a religious system. But when God reaches to us, we are living in revelation. Religion and revelation. They both begin with RE, but after that, everything is different. <coughs> Our fourth tenet is that deconstruction asserts that in an effort to understand what an author actually meant by his or her language, we must resort to very sophisticated techniques, means of evaluating texts. This is known as textual criticism. In order to decipher the concepts that shaped that author's understanding of truth and meaning. And of course, to the, uh, to the extent that we get that wrong, well, then we'll get it all wrong. Now, the summation of these four points is, is really one conclusion that there is no absolute truth in any writer's text. Instead, there's only a reflection of how that author perceived the world in his time or her time. And so the reason that Derrida was alarmed at illegitimate appeals to authority uh, and power was because he didn't believe that any of these texts were right. And he, he fundamentally rejected these texts 
because he had seen the abuse of authority and the abuse of power. One could argue that World War II was the largest example of this ever seen in the history of the world, where a man who wasn't even a German usurped the chancellorship of Germany, plunged the world into a global holocaust, and 80 million people lost their lives. And in addition, two cities vanished in a moment due to nuclear war that was at the time anyway, deemed to be necessary to end the war. Modern people can debate whether that's right or not, but there was a lot of soul searching done at that time. That's what they decided to do on how to end the Japanese side of the war. Meanwhile, in Europe, we see the genocide of an entire race, the Jews, and we see entire civilizations destroyed. So Derrida looked at that and he said, well, this is a complete abuse of power. It's a complete abuse of authority. And he was as suspicious of it in the church, which was his context, as he was in politics, which was Hitler's context, which is obviously who I was referring to. And so Derrida believed that we had to call the bluff on anything that purported to speak from a privileged or logocentric perspective. Now, logocentric is a word that means centered in the logos, centered in that divine idea. And so with it, Derrida said, we absolutely cannot have anything that claims to speak for God because look at what it results in. And of course, living in Europe, he would have had a more profound sense than most Americans would of the history of Europe and Christianity, of the medieval papacy and of the things that went on there. I mean, yes, in his time, the French Revolution had long since passed, and he was simply doing Mark II of that. But, but still, everywhere he looked, he could see either cathedrals or the remains of cathedrals that had survived the war. And there was still the language of the church in much of public discourse as recently as his, as his youth. Most of this has passed away in our time in the post-war era. Really, all of the last bit of falling away in Europe happened in the 50s and 60s and 70s. And by the 80s, Europe was largely a-religious, largely. There are, of course, pockets of faith, and not all countries are the same. But I'm, I'm speaking in broad strokes here, trying to give people the overview of this, rather than get into the nuances of the Czech Republic versus you know northern France. But um, when we think about all of that, we, we can see how this was affecting Derrida. So he said, we have to call the bluff of anybody who seeks to speak this way. Well, this is exactly the language that we're now seeing in critical race theory, uh, in a lot of the language in the 1619 project, uh, people who come from privilege, people who claim to have you know, the truth or whatever, all of this must be deconstructed. So the deconstruction movement in the church is simply a facet of the wider effort within Western civilization to deconstruct or, well, in the best sense, re-examine, but in the less good sense, break down and eliminate all that came together to give us the synthesis, what the medieval uh, scholars called the caritas synthesis, the synthesis based on love, caritas being the Latin, one of the Latin words for love, uh, the, to break down the caritas synthesis that rendered us the civilization that we inherited and now live in the uh, in the fading embers of. And so with that, you know, as we think about Derrida and we think about his 
objection to all of this, we really have to go back to the one of the key teachings of Jesus. And I've often quoted this in my own uh, preaching and teaching. And, uh, you know, every time I, I open this passage, I see something new in it. But in the 20th chapter of Matthew, uh, the sons of Zebedee, their mother, uh, come to Jesus asking for a privileged position for James and John. And she says, let one of them sit on your right hand and one on the left. And Jesus said, you don't know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am able to drink? Now, he's saying this to the disciples, to James and to John. He's not saying it to the mom. But Jesus sees through the ruse. He sees that they put their mother up to this because they don't have the chutzpah to ask the rabbi themselves for this kind of a role. And don't forget, we've got some jockeying going on with Peter. Uh, and Peter says, you know, Lord, they may all forsake you, but pff, I would never do that. And Jesus goes, oh, yeah, before the rooster crows three times, you're going to deny me. So we've got this kind of factionalism, even within the 12 disciples, over who's going to be first, who is on top. And if you've ever seen the kind of competitiveness that can happen in a religious system, and by the way, we could say the church, but listen, if you've ever worked in a synagogue or had any dealings with people that were involved in Buddhist or Hindu temples or you know, somebody in a mosque, I mean, listen, this is just human behavior. It's sinful behavior because humans are sinful. And that same ambition and desire for prominence and influence and wealth and power perennially recapitulates itself in human history. We, we absolutely have to reckon on this. And I've said many times in my preaching that one of the great foibles of modern Christianity is we do not grapple deeply enough with the profundity of sin and how deeply it has marred us and that we are in fact a ruined race because of sin and its destructive, pernicious effects in us. And it affects many different aspects of who we are. It makes us war and oppose one another. It makes us crave appetites of the flesh that we should never crave. These could be sexual or they could be food. They could be many different things. But we have all this that's been unleashed. So Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. You have no idea what is in your own hearts. And, and are you able to rise to the level where you could faithfully carry out what you are asking for? By the way, you'll only be able to do this if you drink the cup that I drank. Well, what was the cup that Jesus drank? Rejection, suffering, being thrust out of the camp, being mocked and ridiculed. That's what you're going to have to do if you think you're going to be ready to take on that kind of responsibility. And they said to him, we are able. Well, you know, we would guffaw at such a response, but Jesus replies, oh, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not even mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. So Jesus is, you know, don't, to quote the emperor from Star Wars, don't be too sure of this technological terror that you have created. Well, don't be too sure of what's in your own heart. Don't be too sure of how, how firmly you stand and whether you can really be with me in that place. And when the 10 heard of this, they were indignant at the two brothers. See, that it was the two brothers that had put their mother up to this. 
you have to excuse me. I still have not gotten over this cough and this cold. But Jesus called them to himself. And he said this, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. Those who rule the nations lord it over the nations that they rule. And their great ones exercise authority over them. Who are their great ones? They're key lieutenants. So every ruler has his designated lieutenants. In the United States, we might call them cabinet officers or heads of agencies. In some other countries, we might call them uh, the minister of defense or interior affairs. We don't call them ministers here. In the United States, minister means clergyman, clergywoman, but, but it's the same idea. They're great ones exercise authority over them. Over who? Over their subjects. So this is the building of a government. This is the layering of government. We have the highest one, and then we have those that are their key lieutenants or deputies. And he says, it shall not be so among you. For whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. The way to ascend is to descend. Some years ago, Bill Hybels, I wasn't a huge fan of Bill Hybels, but, but I mean, he he did have some great ideas at times. He wrote a book called Descending into Greatness. And it, it's really predicated on this very verse. It shall not be so among you. You can't live like the nations. You can't build kingdoms. You can't exercise authority with the objective of manipulating and controlling people to get them to do what you want them to do. You cannot do that. Because whoever would be first among you must be your slave even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve, but to give his life as a ransom for many. I think this is very much in the center of what he's referring to as the cup that I will drink from. And he says to James and John, are you willing to serve at this level? You just asked for rulership. You just asked to get ahead. You just asked to play the game. So Derrida is reacting to the abuse of power that led to the Second World War He's seen the abuse of power in other sectors of society, including the church, unfortunately. And he says, I've seen this abuse of power among academics and philosophers. They purport to speak for reason. And nobody who operates from this place of domination should be trusted. We've got to call their bluff. We've got to deconstruct. And so Jesus had already seen that this was a problem 20 centuries ago. And when he ran into a pocket of it within his own followers, this was his answer to it. And I think we've really lost this message in our time. And it's part of why uh, many people today, whether charismatic or evangelical, or maybe mainstream Christians, whether Protestant or Catholic, they're struggling because they they are looking for this kind of what we want to call what safe leadership, non-toxic leadership. We have different words for it, uh, but they often don't see that lived out. And of course, we're all fallen. We're all, we all fall short. We can espouse these ideals, but then when the chips are down, oftentimes we fail to live up to them or we don't, we're blind to our own obvious faults. And we do these things not even realizing we're doing. Now, again, I'll pause for a second if you want to ask any questions before I keep going.
No, and I think I think this is where it's so crucial, um, where it all kind of synthesizes together because as we've repeatedly seen abuse of power, uh, abuse of leadership, um, oftentimes in, in the deconstruction conversation, uh, in the name of Jesus, they've seen this, uh, and they've seen it, um, uh, perpetuated. Then what happens is that, um, there is a, because, because the trust has been broken with, with leadership, and with the people that are supposed to be the mouthpieces and, and speaking for God, it translates all the way down into even those that are authoring the pages of scripture. How can those people be trusted? No one can be trusted. And then it does become this, this idea going all the way back to your example of the elephant. You know, there, the view is, is that, Oftentimes when I sit with people that are deconstructing, most of the time it's not that they're deconstructing from the belief of God. There is, there's, there's this intrinsic thing that there, there's un, un, undeniability in, in what they would call the divine. And, but, but they go to go back to that elephant. Um, each, each world religion is, is grabbing a hold of what they would see as this part of the divine where that breaks down is you're assuming that you have the perspective to see the elephant when no one else can. So that there is that fundamental broken assumption there of, um, of how you're, you're viewing that, but it really does trickle down from this mistrust and, and often rightly so of leadership um, and particularly of Christian leadership and the abuse that's been perpetrated on that and then how that sort of breaks breaks everything else um you know down and um it's an important thing to think about even in even in jesus's words about you know be careful uh if you cause these little ones to stumble that's right um you know be careful uh if 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 you want to be a teacher you'll be judged harshly um I don't know how much we've what we weigh the cost anymore of what it means to 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 call yourself a leader in the in the church in Christianity and, and what kind of a standard maybe you don't hold yourself to, but I believe that God is going to hold um, hold up. So uh, I I think it's all it kind of synthesizes there uh, in that. Yep, I I agree with all of that, and it. It should cause us to be, well, back to Kierkegaard, it should cause us to be filled with fear and trepidation. And yet, not a hopeless fear and trepidation, but rather just a fear and trepidation that we might call the holy fear of God. Because, yeah. you know, the Lord, the Lord calls us to live a particular kind of a life, and he empowers us to live that life if we will yield to the Spirit many times we don't do such a great job yielding. And this is really, right. you know, it, late, late, late in the gospels in John chapter 21, we have the story of the restoration of Peter. And of course, Peter had been the one who said it, they'll all deny you Lord, but I'll never do it. So Peter has this, you know, irrational exuberance about himself and his own capabilities and his own loyalty and faithfulness. 
And Peter said, Jesus says to him, Peter, you're going to deny me three times before dawn. And Peter says, well, they might do that, but I never would do that. That, Lord, is why I should be prime minister of your cabinet or Lord Chamberlain of your new kingdom. Never mind James and John. Never mind these other hoi polloi. You, you can already see that, you know, exaltation of self. Well, then the rooster crows. Peter goes out and weeps. And he ultimately goes all the way up to Galilee. And the Lord has to go fetch him at the Sea of Galilee where he's gone fishing again. So the, the you know, this thing of, of Peter's restoration, what does Jesus say? Do you love me more than these? Do you think that you're not going to abandon me before they will? Fair enough. Game on. Feed my sheep. Show it by serving them. And so we're back to the same idea of leadership through service. John Wimber was really big on this. I, I learned this lesson from him more than anyone else. Um, I've, of course, seen it in the scripture, and I've, I've read some other writers that I thought had value in this area. But John used to hammer away at this over and over again. If you want to be great, you must serve. And so, you know, we've talked in this show about how people think that ministry is really to become almost like a lesser God. You, you know, you broadcast your videos and you fly around in, you know, first class and you have the black car pick you up and you do all this stuff. None of this looks like the service that we're called to engage in. And, you know, then you go and you do the meeting and, you know, you preach and you might give a word or two, but then you just vanish into the green room. And what did Jesus do for the most part? I mean, I know there were times that he wanted to get away, but for the most part, Jesus mingled with the people. He served them. He healed their sick. He fed them, you know, fishes and loaves, whatever he was doing. But, but there's, a, there's a fundamental disconnect there. And I think a lot of this deconstructing is being driven by that same disconnect. So let's keep going. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And, and to me, that's why because there's people that I dearly, dearly love who I would consider have deconstructed away from the faith, but I know them and have walked with them. And I know it's from a place of wounding yeah, uh, of leadership and all of that sort of thing. And so I believe that's why we just have to be careful in how we even speak about it because it's a tragedy and it's, it is. I believe yeah. it's something that the Lord hates, you know? So, yeah. Well, so to that point, deconstruction has now come to the place where effectively what it means, uh, I don't know that if, whether people have actually used this exact verbiage, but effectively what it means is a critical dismantling of tradition and of traditional modes of thought. That's what deconstruction has come to mean. And I'm particularly now thinking of the church, but, but this could apply more broadly in society. It includes both uh, traditional ways of thinking as well as a refusal to recognize as authorities those who see themselves or maybe who are only perceived to see themselves. In other words, they maybe don't see themselves as authorities, but the outsiders looking in think that they think they are authorities. So they see themselves as authorities or they are perceived by others to see themselves as authorities. But either way, they are now claiming to speak from a privileged perspective. And again, we've, we've heard the language during, uh, you know, the last couple of years of white privilege, but this could equally be religious privilege or in a very different context in a completely different part of the world. It might be Chinese privilege over Japanese privilege or Japanese privilege 
over Chinese privilege during the invasion of China by the Japanese in the Second World War. Uh, similarly, we can think of cultures in Africa where, for example, Shaka Zulu exercised black privilege over other blacks, but they weren't my blacks. They were different tribes of blacks. And so Shaka had a huge empire and, you know, oppressed in, in accordance with that. And so, you know, this is a very broad category and it, it really applies to the whole of humanity, but we're rejecting tradition and traditional modes of thought. That's what we're doing in deconstruction. And so in the Christian world, this means questioning traditional modes of Christian belief and often refusing to recognize as authority those who are perceived as occupying privileged Christian positions and who supposedly speak for God. Now, this is interesting because, at least in the charismatic world, we believe not only in pastors, but we also believe in prophets. And centuries ago, the prophet Jeremiah, uh, they didn't have the term pastor, but they had priests. Centuries ago, Jeremiah said this, from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. Now, this doesn't just mean, you know, that I, I lie to you, although for sure that's implied. It could mean dishonest weights and measures. It could mean I'm giving you a raw deal. I don't treat you fairly. Uh, you know, one of the things that is fundamental to the idea of mishpat or justice in Hebrew thought is the idea that everybody gets equal treatment before the Lord. And this is why the Lord hates dishonest weights and measures. It's why he hates dishonesty in the courts. And the prophets speak to this again and again, especially Micah and Amos. God is looking for a society where justice prevails, which means it doesn't matter if you're white or black or yellow or red or brown or blue. You could be a Smurf. You get equal treatment. You get equal rendering. Everybody is, is given a, a common uh, shake in matters of assessment. Now, that doesn't mean everybody is equal. Some people are more gifted musically than others. Some people are more gifted athletically than others. Some people are more gifted academically and intellectually than others. You know, everyone has his or her own set of skills and gifts. And so we're not all equal in the sense of being uh, equal in capability, but we are all equal in terms of the way we should be treated as human beings made in the image of God. And so the prophet and priest deal falsely, and they have healed the wound of my people lightly saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. So Jeremiah saw this, and he calls it out. That was, uh, I was reading from Jeremiah 8, 10 and 11, but there's a, there's a very, very similar verse just two chapters earlier in Jeremiah 6, starting in verse 13, for from the least to the greatest of them, Everyone is greedy for unjust gain. Well, there it is. I'm trying to get a better deal from myself. It may be money. It may be power. The two are often linked. The more power you have, the more money you can make. Look at how much money the Clintons have made since they left the White House. Uh, on the other hand, many times people with great money wield great power, sometimes off the radar, sometimes not. Look at what happened with uh, the censorship in social media by Facebook. And, you know, we can just we can just call that one out uh, because it, it was so obvious the censorship that was going on or what Twitter did. They had money and it resulted in their power and the ability to silence people that they didn't agree with. Everyone is greedy for unjust gain and from prophet to priest, 
Everyone deals falsely, for they have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. So in the deconstructionist world, those who plan, uh, claim to speak for God, whether they're pastors who open the book or they're prophets who claim to speak by revelation, people say, why should I listen to you? I don't share your same context. I don't share your same belief set, your assumptions. So I can't get to the same endpoint that you are getting to. Now, you just made a point, Grant, that I, I think is a really critical one. And that is this, Christian deconstruction generally arises from pain. And that pain is usually caused by, I'll call them subcultures, little micro communities within the wider church. And by the way, even in a, in a church of a relatively modest size, say two or 300, you might have several different factions, several different subcultures, micro communities within that congregation. If it's a bigger church, there'll be more of them and they will be bigger. And these groups all vie for, you know, what's going to be the kind of predominant thing in a democracy. We see it going on. I mean, the biggest embodiment of it is Democrats versus Republicans. But but even within those parties, there are factions and groups that those are those subcultures. And all of these things, at least in a Christian context, uh, are allegedly based on Christian truth. Now, let's be clear, many times they actually are based on Christian truth, but they've ceased to be expressed in an authentic manner, which is to say, compassionate, empathetic, patient, kind, and gentle. These are three aspects of love that Paul names in 1 Corinthians 13, and I rarely hear them talked about, and maybe it's partially the result of all of the unrest, you know, from two summers ago, uh, you know, the George Floyd incident, and much of the conversation in our country that has emerged in the aftermath, gentle, patient, and kind are three dimensions of love that I want to keep coming back to. And so you can hold fast to the truth, but are you gentle about how you do it? You can hold fast to the truth, but are you patient? Or do you lose your patience? And do you become imperious and demanding? And are you kind? You know, there are many people that are so right that they're wrong. And of course, we know what that means. That, you know, they, they carry themselves in, a, in an imperious and demanding and commanding manner. So these subcultures may well be based on Christian truth. They may well be interpreting scripture correctly in the sense that they understand what the original intent of the writer was and they're drawing that meaning forward into the current context. And as they do that, they somehow, the chain breaks and they're no longer gentle, patient, and kind. That would be a pretty good example of where pain might arise, even if what they're saying is based on truth. And then of course, sometimes people get it completely wrong and they aren't even speaking truth, but they are speaking in a religious context and so people confuse what they are hearing in that religious milieu with what they should be hearing. Instead, they're hearing a different message, but, but they may not know the scriptures well enough to be able to say, wait a minute, what you're saying isn't even authentic to what we believe here. So there is actually in all this a healthy sense for the word deconstruction. Deconstruction can refer to the process of questioning one's own beliefs that were once unquestionable, 
um, due to new experiences, maybe new readings, uh, possibly engaging in conversation with people that we've never met before, who have brand new perspectives on life, doesn't mean they're right and we're wrong, doesn't mean that we're right and they're wrong. It means we have to re-examine that and figure out what is right and what is wrong. And this, again, is why we need to come back to the objective truth, even though that in a deconstructed world is often suspect, of divine revelation. Because otherwise, it's just, well, I met a new friend. They believe this. I believe that. We don't agree with each other, but that's because we have different experiences of life. Their truth isn't my truth, but they're a lovely person. And so we're just going to try to get along. This is just a more sophisticated and nuanced um, understanding of the old hippie movement that, you know, love is all you need, which was, of course, articulated in the Beatles famous song, love is all you need, love is all you need. Well, yeah, I'm loving you, but I don't agree with you. That part's okay. But sooner or later, these things come to come to some sort of tension because everybody wants to go where they want to go. And the question is, how do we resolve that disagreement? How do we work that out? How do we learn to live together in healthy tension uh, and to find something that is primarily God-honoring and secondarily comfortable for us. And I say it that way because I'm, I'm still a traditionalist in this sense. God's ways are higher than ours, and we are called to follow them. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are his ways higher than ours. And God summons everybody to follow his ways. So there would be times in a deconstructing environment where we realize, wow, I held some ungodly attitudes. I held some ungodly beliefs. I did some ungodly things, and I need to stop all of that and make my life look more like the life that the scripture commands me to live. So that's the healthy side of deconstruction. Um, and, and, you know, this, this is continuing to accelerate because we live in a world that's more connected than it's ever been due to online uh, media of all kinds. And it's more religiously diverse than ever. I made a few, I made a comment a bit ago uh, that you know there might be 8 billion views religiously out there. Well, so there's religious diversity. But anyone who's ever had a faith crisis knows that um, when you go into a faith crisis, this isn't just some abstract mental exercise. It, it involves questioning those very foundational beliefs and wrestling with our doubts about those beliefs. And it can feel as though we're being torn to pieces. It can be very, very disorienting, very frightening. Um, it usually entails replacing uncomfortable tenants with culturally or personally popular ideas. And this is the dangerous side of deconstruction because we come to things where we say, I, I, I've always been uncomfortable with this thing in scripture, so I'm gonna abandon it and I'll just embrace what wider culture is telling me. And yet the scripture calls us to adhere to God's truth even when it costs us something, even when it's painful, Jesus calls it, take up your cross and follow me. And, you know, I remember when I was in seminary, so this is a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, but I had one professor and he was lecturing through Romans one day and he, we got to Romans 9, 10, and 11 that have to do with uh, Israel's role and predestination and God's purposes and calling and election which incidentally does not speak of predestining people to hell. 
it speaks of the predestined works that are accomplished here on the earth. If you read it contextually, that's pretty clear. And somebody asked him, well, what do you do with Romans 9, 10, and 11? He said, I really don't like those chapters. So, and he held up his Bible. He said, I took a pen knife and cut them out of my Bible. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. I'm thinking, you're in one of the top evangelical seminaries in the world, but that man, that's how he had resolved his deconstruction. And he had come to a, a new resolution that was no longer consistent with biblical revelation. So back to something I said a moment ago, deconstruction nowadays, there could be a healthy side to it, but it most usually entails replacing the uncomfortable tenets of our faith with culturally or personally popular ideas. We literally throw out the faith and remake it in our own image. And this is really what Jude is talking about in his letter in verse four. He says, I wanted to write to you to encourage you to contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And one of the things about Christianity is it is not subject to change at this time. In the early years, as you know, they were kind of understanding what, what the coming of Jesus really meant, what some theologians call the Christ event was all about. I don't like that language for a lot of reasons, but but the coming of Jesus, they were they were coming to an understanding that becomes embodied in the scriptures under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And so when people are deconstructing today, it usually means the abandonment of God's revelation, God's truth on behalf of our own. And with that, we actually place ourselves in a role a higher than God, rather than letting God be the higher, higher position. And this is fundamentally idolatrous. And it is at the root of many of the false ideologies that have overtaken the modern church of our time. It is literally idolatry in the church. And one prominent writer, um, uh, one Jamin Hubner, it's a German name, wrote a book called Deconstructing Evangelicalism. And uh, he wrote in this book that he refuses to recognize as authorities those whom he considers spokesmen of the American evangelical industrial complex. Now that's his exact term. And it evokes memories of something that I remember studying in college called the military industrial complex. This is what arose in the aftermath of the Cold War, or I should say in the aftermath of the Second World War and the advent of the Cold War, where American industry and American government and the American military were all in one kind of common league. And it was for the defeat of communism. Um, and so the military industrial complex became a thing. But of course, big structures, big power, there were certain things that went seriously amiss in all of that. I'm not going to critique all that here, just acknowledge that it happened. Um, and so with all of that, people kind of pulled back. And although, although there are aspects of the American military industrial complex still around, for the most part, this uh, broke down after Vietnam, for the most part, but, but it took time. Well, in the church world, we have our own parallel to that, and it's called the evangelical industrial complex, and it looks like the merchandising of the gospel. It looks like the kind of prophetic ministry that we observed prior to the last election, and, and we could just go on and on, but there's, there's just a whole host of things that are going on here, and many times these things are very problematic, and they cause people great pain, and depending on how they are expressed, 
and this would of course mean they're not gentle, patient, and kind, they can be enormously hurtful and painful to people. And it's all because we are actually merchandising a false gospel. We, we have an Americanized form of Christianity, and oftentimes we can't even see that what we're engaging with that we call Christianity isn't really the authentic gospel that we were called to live. And so I bring us back to that passage we looked at in Matthew. The kings of the earth exercise their authority through their lieutenants, who in turn assert that authority over the subjects, and we're not allowed to live that way. We have to live a completely different ethic. And yet over and over again, as you survey churches across the landscape, you will hear stories of exactly this kind of thing, or you see these you know, mammoth structures that have been built. Well, you know, anytime the bigger the structure, the bigger the scale, uh, the more you know that somebody's willpower was behind all of that in order to bring that thing into being, to organize the permits, the construction crews, the construction company, the get the board to agree, to vote the budget, to, you know, all of that. And Jesus says the kingdom is like leaven. It works through the whole lump of dough. And so oftentimes we have, we've created this false construct. This is, again, one of those religious subcultures that in the end does exactly the opposite of what it sets out to do. And this is part of our human condition as well, is that we sometimes find ourselves doing the very thing we hate the most. Paul said this in Romans chapter seven. So it's probably fair to say that the position of many uh, former evangelicals who now call themselves progressive Christians they're somewhere in this same place that I've just been describing of rejecting the American evangelical industrial complex. And while I understand the, uh, the revulsion at the abuse of power, at the same time, I want to say, don't reject your Lord and don't reject the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Because the truths of Christianity remain true, even if the people who are promulgating them are themselves doing it in the wrong way. And I might even appeal to your uh, sense of dignity and justice and say, if you were to make a mistake, would you not also want to be given similar grace? Because of course you will make a mistake, it's just a question of where and in what sphere. This is why all utopian experiments ultimately fail because in the end you can't create a utopia out of fallen human beings. And for many, maybe even most, who identify themselves as progressive or deconstructed Christians, this is really just language. It's, it's, a, it's a ruse. It's a more palatable way of saying they've departed from the faith altogether. Deconstructionism for many people has become the way they head out the door, and they no longer actually adhere to what has always been understood to be Christianity. And so thus deconstruction can lead to deconversion, but it doesn't need to do that. I said right up front that there is a healthy use of deconstruction, which causes us to re-examine our beliefs and more particularly how we express them and find better and more appropriate ways of creating that synthesis that we call the Christian faith. Now, there are many places you can go to, to get ideas for this and to draw on this, but I want to suggest a few because this is such an enormous topic and we've already gone long and I, I'm, I'm aware that, you know, I, I don't want to 
I don't want to wear people out by just continuing to blab on and on and on. But C.S. Lewis is a perennial favorite in thinking about the Christian faith and what really matters in it and how should we believe it. So I would recommend you any of C.S. Lewis's works um, on apologetics. But for that matter, he does very well allegorically with his uh, Paralandria trilogy, as well as the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, Francis Schaeffer was a towering intellect. He ran an interfaith community in Labrie, Switzerland, until his death. Um, he wrote a number of books that would be worth looking at. I hardly dare mention any one because he's, I mean, everything I've ever read by Francis Schaeffer is fantastic. Uh, and then a third one would be Oz Guinness. And uh, Oz has recently come out with a couple of new books. I like Oz a lot. I've had the good fortune to meet him. I'd never met Lewis or Schaefer, but um, Oz Guinness uh, is a, one of my heroes in terms of his writing and teaching. And Oz Guinness, um, he wrote a book called The Church at the End of the 20th Century, which, of course, we started out by looking at a French philosopher who lived just beyond the end of the 20th century. Guinness was speaking into that exact context. So if you want to uh, if you want to get something that will give you some fuel from a, what I would call a constructive rather than a deconstructive point of view, how to, how to rebuild your faith, how to reformat it, how to answer these things that are swirling around in our society, on social media, in the mainstream media, in the schoolrooms of our countries. I mean, all of these places are where these ideas are, ideas are uh, being played out. And yet, you know, the scripture commands us that we should always be ready to give an answer for the faith that lies within us. So we have to have answers ready. You might need some training. You might actually need to turn off social media for a while. You might need to shut off, I don't know, American Idol for a while and read some really good books that will help you in your mind, help you to grow in loving God with your whole mind, not just with your experience. And in so doing, you might actually have something to say that's worthwhile and meaningful that reinforces and upholds historic Christian orthodoxy in the face of a world that is rapidly losing its faith. Well, I've said a lot there, and Grant, I don't think I gave you one single word in maybe 20 minutes, but I'll stop, and if you want to reply, then go for it. Uh, it's also good. People want to hear from you, not me again. So, uh I, I think it's good. I, I would say, I, you know, as I'm just envisioning about who, um, you know, who's even listening to this, I, I do know that there are people that I've met personally that have found me through this podcast who are trying to figure out, who are trying to, to not let go completely of the faith, uh, but are in some sort of a deconstructing, uh, you know, point. And so I know there are people that are listening, um, from that viewpoint and they're they're really trying to maintain their faith the the abyss of looking at you know the, the nihilistic viewpoint is is a, is a terrifying thing to them and so they're not necessarily doing this in a, in a light way i've had long conversations uh with people that have listened to this podcast that found me because of this podcast and all of that and so i know that those are there listening and i also know that there are people that are listening that that would consider themselves strong in the faith, old in the faith even. And, but you probably know people, there are probably people in your lives that you've seen sort of spin off and, and through this, through this path of, 
of deconstruction. And so to the first, I, I really want to just implore you to continue to seek after the person of Jesus. I mean, Jesus is, is clear that if you seek me, you'll find me. And to not let go of the biblical person of Jesus and, um, and to continue to seek, uh, to seek after him. And to let go of your hurt and your pain and even even your presuppositions and, you know, to, to have peace that surpasses understanding, we have to relinquish our right to understand. And so to, to just allow yourself to just go after Jesus um, wholeheartedly. And I trust him that he will lead you uh, in, into the right paths. And then to those that are that are on the other end that that have. Um, people in their lives that, that they, they feel like are no longer in the faith, maybe, or, or whatever, just to remember and to caution about how you speak the quote unquote truth of, of, of how you speak that in love and delivering truth in and of itself is not love. And the scriptures tell us that we're supposed to deliver it in love. And uh, Ken, you said patient, kind, and gentle, uh, gentle, um, and and just thinking about how much how much truth is being yelled and screamed and and how much truth is being used as a as a bludgeoning device um, and how counterproductive that is and I think also inherent in that truth and love statement is that the people that you're delivering it to need to believe that you love them I think that they need. They need to think that you love them. It doesn't matter if you say it and they don't believe it. Then there's a disconnect. And so, um, so much of Jesus's teachings about the log in our own eye uh, probably need to be addressed before you decide that you're going to to help someone get on the right track um, in this. Again, with fear and trembling. Again, with with understanding that there's eternity on the on the line here. And how we conduct ourselves is, is so important as believers. But um, yeah, again, I, as you can tell, this is something that I, I have uh, too many hours dealing with and I'm, I'm, I'm passionate about it. Uh, and I really appreciate your thought and, and effort in this. We've been even discussing this a couple of weeks and as you've been preparing and, and to tell you, you all who are listening, this came from a, a, someone who, who was listening in and, and wrote us a, a question that they wanted us to talk about. So, you know, feel free. The, I think the past two or three episodes that we've done have been from that. And so feel free to continue to email us um, things that you want to hear uh, more on. So that's all I got, Ken. We're, we're way long, but I think, this, I think this topic deserves it. Well, I'm glad that we could take a crack at it. As I said, it's a huge topic. I've tried to distill some key points. Um, we've undoubtedly left a few unsaid that should have been said. So maybe we'll do a part two at another time, but I think we better wrap it up for now or people are going to start falling asleep on us. I think so. Well, Ken, thanks so much for, uh, for being with us and thank you all so very much for listening. And we'll see you right back here uh, next week on another episode of God is not a theory with Ken Fish. God is Not a Theory is a podcast of Orbis Ministries. For more information about Orbis Ministries, go to orbisministries.org. If you have questions you'd like to have Ken answer on the podcast, 
please send us an email to podcast at orbisministries.org. Thanks for listening. Hi, everyone. It's Julia with Orbis Ministries. I just wanted to let you know that if you'd like to learn more from Ken and connect with others in the Orbis community, you can download the Orbis Ministries app on your Apple or Android phone. On the app, you'll find a free teaching archive, a conference schedule, and an internal messaging community. A link to download the app can be found in your description. Thanks so much. God bless.